Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The extent to which lawyers, corporate executives, and even government officials focus on cybersecurity fluctuates with the threat level that is posed by malicious cyber actors and the possibility of regulatory obligations to mitigate the risk these threats may cause to their internal and external operations. In light of a number of ransomware attacks on critical industries, lawmakers and regulators locally, nationally, and globally are imposing new cybersecurity requirements on key industries. Cybersecurity regulations are rapidly evolving, and while this body of law is not systematic, industries are working through who owns the internal cyber regulatory responsibilities and compliance. There are a lot of different stakeholders with competing interests, both internally and externally, and a lot of industries whose operations have not been regulated in this area before that are now facing cybersecurity threats and potentially new regulatory obligations. Faced with a range of obstacles, businesses are changing how they approach cybersecurity as part of their business decision around risk. In addition to creating a roadmap for the multiple layers of regulatory responsibility involved in cybersecurity, our guest today, Jim Dempsey, recently published a book titled Cybersecurity Law Fundamentals, a Comprehensive Survey of Cybersecurity Laws and Practitioners. Jim Dempsey has been a leading expert on privacy and internet policy for three decades. Jim is a senior policy advisor to the Stanford Program on Geopolitical Technology and Governance and a lecturer at UC Berkeley Law School. From 2012 to 2017, after a presidential appointment and Senate confirmation, Jim served as a member of the U.S. Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, an independent federal agency tasked with advising senior policymakers and overseeing counterterrorism. Jim was also senior counsel at Center for Democracy and Technology from 1997 to 2017. From 1985 to 1995, Jim was an assistant counsel at the House Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Civil and Constitutional Rights. He also practiced law as an associate at Arnold and Porter in Washington, D.C., and clerk for Judge Robert Brousher of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Jim joins the podcast to discuss his new book and how he will keep it updated as cybersecurity law is a developing field, and any policymaker, lawmaker, industry leader, and legal scholar would be well advised to consider owning a copy of Cybersecurity Law Fundamentals. Well, Jim, welcome to Explain to Shane. Thank you for joining me at the AI panel about how the U.S. should go about establishing national cyber strategy that we did a couple of weeks ago. And you mentioned to me that you have a book coming out called Cybersecurity Law Fundamentals, and you were so kind to give me an advanced copy. I <laughs> wasn't expecting it to be such a tome, which is amazing. But at the same time, it, I love that you're going to do it online so there can be updates along the way, because as we'll discuss during the podcast, so much has not been updated for both cyber slash security law, privacy in what, you know, what's on the books and hopefully things will be changing for the net positive and you'll be able to change that. So tell us, what does the book cover and what inspired you to write it? Well, Shane, thanks so much for uh, asking me to be on the podcast. It's a delight to talk to you. The origin story of this book is that uh, in 2016 at Berkeley, the uh, Dean for uh, Curriculum asked me to teach a course in cybersecurity law to the LLMs, mostly uh, foreign students getting the two-year LLM degree. And at the time, there was no casebook. Legal natives, can you explain to us what an LLM is? An LLM is a U.S. law degree that um, qualifies you for the bar, but it's mostly granted to, mostly uh, taken by 
non-U.S. students, people who already have a law degree in their home country, China, Germany, Brazil, and come to the U.S. and get a U.S. law degree as well. <laughs> my my brother-in-law is Brazilian. So when he first got here, he was like, great, I can practice in Louisiana. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, well, if you take, you know, the LLM from Berkeley or other schools, then you're bar qualified. So uh, many of these folks do, you know, pass the bar in New York or California or elsewhere. So anyhow, we, we wanted to offer this course. And I looked around, there wasn't really a suitable case book. So I started compiling my own materials. And after a year or so, I had a pretty good set of PowerPoints. And I said to myself, well, geez, you know, let me turn this into something that I can publish. And I was a little bit inspired by Paul Schwartz and Dan Soloff, who have a publication with IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, called Privacy Law Fundamentals. And I thought it would be great to have cybersecurity law fundamentals. And that IAPP, I thought, would be the ideal publisher because they are practitioner-oriented, and I wanted this to be not an academic book, not a theoretical book. I wanted it to be real, nitty-gritty, what's actually happening, and how does this all fit together? And so that was, uh, I made the decision to write the book, I think, three or four years ago. <laughs> the field kept growing, and the book kept growing. And as you say, this little thing of, oh, let's turn my PowerPoints into something that I can publish. I now end up with 500 plus pages. <laughs> 16 chapters is it of, of everything I can think of. I was like, okay, come on, let's see if there's something here I can't find. No, you, you covered it. <laughs> well, and it was fascinating exercise for me looking at basically how is a new field of law being constructed? And uh, as you know, as uh, many of your listeners will know, the United States does not have a comprehensive privacy law. We have the patchwork quilt of the sectoral approach and the federal state and federal approach. And the same is true on cybersecurity. There is no single comprehensive cybersecurity law. So really, the field is made up of criminal law, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, major Supreme Court decision on that this summer. Common law, torts and contract and negligence, some regulatory law, FTC enforcement, largely created out of whole cloth using its Section 5 authority of, to go after unfair or deceptive trade practices. Nothing in the FTC Act about cybersecurity, nothing about data, period. And yet the FTC has created a regulatory framework there. And now, Quite fascinating, most recently, trade law, national security law, the so-called CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, trying to keep uh, dangerous products or dangerous services out of the sort of infrastructure. So putting that all together and trying to make sense of it and then trying to keep up to date with it was a fascinating, fascinating challenge. You just wouldn't believe it when you dig in how much there is, you know, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, they're not only the people who do the security checkpoints at the airport, they also have pipeline security. Right. Colonial pipeline gets hit and suddenly everybody's wondering what rules are there governing these pipelines, which are so critical 
to our economy that there's really only one of them connecting the entire East Coast of the United States, and it gets shut down by a ransomware attack, and suddenly the home heating oil and the jet airplane fuel and the gasoline stop flowing. So it's an amazing, fascinating, rapidly developing field. It's been fun putting this together, and I hope it's I hope it's useful to practitioners. I did some work with Booz Allen actually right after that. They asked me to moderate a panel discussion on, it it ended up being about critical infrastructure and the uh, information, ISACs, information, think about that later. Information sharing and analysis centers. Yeah, I always wanted with security instead of sharing. But how many FBI agents now work in that space was fascinating to me. So, you know, where it used to be your CISOs were lawyers or were, you know, know, and and now you are dealing with people that really have a a very solid view of how things should go because they look at it from a criminal intent. Well, and one of the organizing principles I used uh, in thinking about the book and in organizing the book was thinking about the anatomy of a data a uh, cybersecurity incident, whether it was a breach or a ransomware attack. So, you know, I, I started in my mind putting myself in, a, in sort of a lawyer's shoes. You're the general counsel of a company. One day, the CISO or, you know, the, whoever's your CTO or CISO says, you know, we think we've got a problem. We think we have somebody in our network. But don't worry, we're on top of it. And then what is the cascading series of concerns that go through the mind of the general counsel? And what is the general counsel going to have to deal with? Well, the first reaction is, this is a crime. We have a trespasser in our system. We're the victim. So look at the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and what is a crime and what isn't a crime. Then if any person identifiable information was an issue, and consumer or customer data was compromised, immediately you think about, uh uh-oh, we're now going to have to tell our customers under the breach notification laws. So the next chapter is breach notification. Once the breach notice is out, then may come the lawsuits, class actions, or derivative uh, shareholder derivative actions. So I have two chapters on litigation, one on standing, which is a critical first hurdle that any case has to cross, and then on Sort of what are the doctrines, since there is no cybersecurity statute per se, what are the doctrines? And they're mainly common law doctrines that come come into play in the the civil litigation. Then the regulators are going to come calling. And it might be the Federal Trade Commission. It might be a state attorney general. It might be another agency, the sector-specific agency that may open an investigation. And then you know, what happens if it turns out that it was a nation state that carried out the attack? And of course, many of the spectacular breaches of the past five or 10 years have been carried out by nation state attackers. And so then what is the sort of national security law implications of that? And what are the powers of the president as commander in chief and as head of the federal government? What are the powers, uh, sort of national security, trade, sanctions, powers? So I tried to sort of trace that arc of what are the things that go through the mind or should go through the mind of of a general counsel of a company, large or small, that suddenly realizes, yes, they have been uh, the victim. And now they've got this cascading series of legal questions. And really, I, I wrote, you know, there are obviously now 
there has developed a, a specialty in the law of practicing cybersecurity law. Just as on the CISO side, it's a lot of former FBI agents and other government folks. On the uh, lawyer side, it's a lot of former prosecutors or people who had been at DOJ and have a prior government experience. But I was really aiming not only for them, because none of them has a full picture. Some may be experts in the national security piece, or others are expert in the criminal law piece, or others are expert in the uh, litigation, uh, civil litigation piece. I wanted to allow them to reach across areas. But also what I wanted to do was with that general counsel in mind, I mean, the general counsel may be a capital markets expert, or maybe a HR expert, or maybe a, a general corporate law expert, and now suddenly he or she has to start leading the legal response to the cyber breach. Just the contents page are amazing. I mean, it's so well laid out. It's just so well structured it, that I'm like, you read through this and it, it just triggers thoughts in your head like, oh, they might not have thought of that. Oh, did they think of this? I mean, and you, and you have it done by the civil actions and, you know, yeah. different overviews, depending on, you know, kind of where your regulatory structure are and economic espionage. I love that one. Uh, Wiretap Act, you know, just very, some very basic fundamentals that I think this will be on every person's desk. Well, virtually, maybe. <laughs> I hope so. Well, yeah. Well, uh, so the book is actually, uh, as we're speaking, it's uh, now available from IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals. You can buy a hard copy or you can buy it in an ebook. And whether you buy the hard copy or the ebook uh, version, I'm also going to be launching in the next day or so a website, which will be free, called cybersecuritylawfundamentals.org, both cybersecurity law fundamentals. And I'm already half, I've already populated that with about 40 pages worth of updates. Okay. So be between the time I sent the book off for uh, proofreading and layout and uh, the time it's being published now as we speak, there's been a lot of water under the bridge already. And this is the point I realized, which is, you know, you mentioned before, how do you keep this up to date? So I now have 16 chapters, 16 sets of updates, and I'll be constantly feeding that, which again is fascinating just to watch this law developing in real time and to see both the courts grappling with this and the regulatory agencies and the, the White House grappling with this. So I will be posting those updates. Honestly, they won't mean a heck of a lot without the book, um, and they can be a little misleading without the book. But for anybody who has bought the book, there will be for free immediately these updates. You know, we've had two or three executive orders, uh, the huge Biden executive order from May, plus another one on supply chains that he issued more recently. We've got uh, new FTC rules under Gramm-Leach-Bliley for the financial services entities that are regulated by the FTC, a new Supreme Court case, uh, the TransUnion case on standing, which is critical. As I mentioned, a new Supreme Court case, Van Buren, on the application of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, ongoing developments in the sort of trade and uh, investment aspects of this and the application of these sort of national security law authorities to try to keep dangerous foreign-made equipment out of our infrastructure for the developments there. So it, it's, it's a fascinating subject chain. And, you know, You've, you've led your whole life engaged in policy development, uh, as I have, and watched this field 
gradually and now at just like a rocket ship taking off so many different pieces in play at once, just, you know, putting aside where you come down on any one of these issues, it's just fascinating to see the country as a whole, policymakers at the federal and state level grappling with this question of how do we improve our clearly deficient cyber defenses? How do we incentivize and motivate improvements in them without quashing innovation, without burdening innovation? So it's, it, it is fascinating, and it will continue to be fascinating how this, this field develops. Well, just again, fascinating, just the content page, but the ones that you have date are so, such a tell. Because it's interesting to see who early on realized in, from an industry perspective that they were going to be responsible for the networking element that was then considered cyber. And now, you know, we've got the retail industry, you know, we've healthcare has been there a long time, but now we're having you know, elements, you know, beyond that banking has been on this very early. But the fact that we now uh, going back to the ISACs, there's a restaurant and hospitality ISAC <laughs> yeah. because, you know, they're all connected and, you know, soon there should probably be a kitchen ISAC because everything in your kitchen may, I'm not sure it should be, but it is connected. I always like to remind everyone who watched Silicon Valley at the end of the day, it was the refrigerator that saved the entire thing because of Guilfoyle. But so there's just a lot of connected things out there. So how do you overlay the cybersecurity and the privacy as we think of them, the yin yang two coin situation and, and the updates on that as well? Yeah, that's such a fascinating question. Now, you know, for those of us, anyone who's been doing privacy for a long time, if you go back to the sort of origins of information privacy, both in the United States and globally, it was founded based on this concept of fair information practices. Fair information practices are how do you use and collect information about individuals? And you talk about notice and consent, but you also talk about purpose specification and collection limitations and limits on secondary use and security. So part of privacy, information privacy, was always the principle that if you collect information about an individual, you have some obligation to protect it against loss or misuse. And in a way, that's the foundation of the FTC's cybersecurity authority, or at least this authority that it's created uh, for itself, the FTC has basically said it is an unfair trade practice to take somebody's personal or sensitive data, banking data, credit card data, medical data. It is an unfair trade practice to take that data and not protect it with reasonable measures. And a lot of what this book is about, a lot of what the field is about, of course, is what is reasonable. Because the standard in cybersecurity is not perfection. Everybody agrees, certainly all the technologists agree, there is no such thing as perfect security, and particularly now in a world of uh, APTs, the advanced persistent threats, particularly China, but other state-sponsored attackers, as well as sort of the hybrid kind of attackers that you see finding shelter in Russia, there is no perfect security. 
and the perfectly secure system just would be useless. It would be a, encased in concrete and buried in the bottom of the ocean. So the standard is reasonableness. And then that opens the, the question, what is reasonable? How much security is enough security? And that's what companies are grappling with. It's a cost-benefit test, really, it should be. And that's what regulators are grappling with. That's what, to some extent, Congress, but Congress, I, I don't see a lot coming out of Congress on this. But that, to me, is, is the fundamental question in this field. How much security is enough security to protect you from legal liability? Well, I think, so we had the, um, the information security people from Uber, I think it was the CISO on, and they are really working on privacy by design. And, you know, when you look at somebody who is in the, you know, while, while they're doing a service, what he's got to help design is the app and he's got an app that is global. So he is having to really stay on top of the state laws, the federal, the national laws, and the in the other different countries. And then also, you know, because we don't have a federal privacy law, which I am a fan of, you know, for this, like for this United States, when you have these separate laws that get passed, you have to build that into the app as well. And so it becomes very challenging. I loved having him on the show. He was great. And then after we did the podcast, it was interesting. Some of the other majors <laughs> called me in uh, the big tech and said, could you put me in touch with him? So I'd like to talk to him. And he <laughs> has a book coming out as well. But it was interesting to see people that hadn't really like really liked the way he laid his arguments out, of why this and not that, and needing to really work. As I always say, I want the technical engineers in before the lawyers, if I can, but I need the, those two teams to work together. Because the, the technical team is going to help the lawyers understand how to build with the future in mind and not just, as I like to call them, the department of no. Yep. And you say, no, you can't do that. And you're like, well, yep. it's part of our actual revenue model. We need to figure out how to do that. Well, and that's one way in which privacy and cybersecurity are similar, which is they both have to be built in from the design uh, level of a product that uh, you know we've been saying for years that you can't bolt on privacy after the product is designed, and you really can't bolt on security. And some of the some of the same questions that you ask for a privacy perspective, you ask, you should be asking from a cybersecurity perspective. So the first thing that you any company has to do, large or small, is take take an inventory. What data are we collecting? Where are we keeping it? What devices are connected to our network? What software is running on our network? And that's important from both a privacy perspective and a, a cybersecurity's perspective. So whoever is, in, and, and by the way, the chief privacy officer and the chief information security officer, they need to have a good relationship and work together inside a company. And then through the product development teams and through product counsel, you push down that recognition into the, into the company to the development stage. So whether it's Privacy by design or secure software development practices, uh, both privacy and cybersecurity need to be taken into account absolutely from the, from the beginning. We have an interesting issue going on that started, well, we have it here in the House and now in the Senate, and now it's become something that South Korea is doing, which we have some senators getting behind it, which is this whole idea of sideloading, which, you know, first of all, you have to explain it to people, which is frustrating when you have to start with that. But the idea that I happen to be a big, um, I'm in the Apple ecosystem, so I love my Apple device. And part of it is I know that they have taken the, the time, money, and energy to think through parts of this for me as a consumer. And I appreciate that because I don't want to have to comb through 
nor do I have any idea what's in the back of some of these apps. Plus, I expect updates and I expect that the updates are going to be positive to my user experience. And now they've just decided that, that every device, you should be able to put anything on it. Now, what's interesting is they're doing that to consumers, which are the worst place for that to happen. Because consumers really have not very much understanding. They love using the devices. They love using the, the consumer elements of it, but they aren't technical engineers, nor should they be. And, or they can be, but, you know, but if you did the same thing and did it to corporations and said they had to put anything that any vendor suggested onto their network operation, they'd be like, hell no, I'm right. not doing that. So I don't know why we're accepting this right now as a plausible thought within our, our legislators. I think it's crazy. Well, you know, it, it's rooted, as, as you know, in the sort of concept of the right to tinker and um, the concept that if I've bought the device, I should then be able to unlock it and do with it what I want. This is a long-running bait in the industry. It's a little bit different than the, than the corporate analogy that you're drawing, Shane, because obviously the corporation owns its network and their attitude is we do with it what we want. A little bit, the the arguers, those arguing for the open consumer devices are saying, well, you as a consumer, you bought this phone, you should be able to put on it what you want. Now, you're taking a huge risk doing so. And Apple, for example, as you say, Apple has put huge effort into developing a secure environment. And as you say, making sure that everything that gets pushed to your phone is going to be an upgrade, not a downgrade, and not a security downgrade. That's why that's why Apple has been so strict on the encryption issue. They don't want to be pushing anything to anybody's phone that ends up degrading its security capabilities. I can sort of see, Shane, I can see both sides of that debate in terms of this notion that, uh, hey, I bought this phone. Why should it all be wrapped up with various limitations on what I can do with it? But I can definitely see the fear of the companies that if they were to allow third-party products, unvetted third-party products onto their phones, it'll break the phones in various ways, including security. So you, And then the blame comes back to the device maker, the operating system developer. The ones that seem to come on are actually come off the web, which is interesting because they don't start as an actual app. They're a, they're a web element. And most of it's spyware, which is, I've just been tracking that lately because I find it interesting to see how, how does it get there? And like, you know, where still are the soft underbelly points of, you know, influx for the cyber crime situation? And, and so it's like, they kind of know that the app environment right now is pretty tough to get into. So they they bring it on as you know web application, which then you can upload onto your phone. So it's a it's a unique way of that's why they call it side loading, <laughs> getting around and it. The, and the bad guys, the bad guys are constantly innovating, and of course, in the defensive game, it's um, a little bit like terrorism. The defender has to be right one hundred percent of the time. The attacker only has to succeed getting through once. Did you read your um, one of your colleagues over at Stanford, Herblin, wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about about how it was like a cat, you know, it was like trying to keep his daughter's cat, you know, quarantined in his house. It's a great piece because it's like yeah. that cat only has one thing it has to do. And it, exactly like, all these different things to block and tackle the cat. And exactly. That's, oh, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Analog analogy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great to be associated now with Herb. Yeah. So the only thing I would suggest you add to the book is you need to do a poster. I think you need to have a decision-making tree because it's like, I read through all this stuff and it's like, is this happening? Immediately go here. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. 
Yeah. And I almost think it's like a, you can do a virtual scroll with like the, the URLs or the numbers of like, no, like it's almost when you call your doctor's office and they're like, is, are you like injured? You need to go to the hospital. Right. No, I like that. I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to think about that. And it is sort of a decision tree and it is this sort of cascading series of concerns and then the, the legal responses to them. Well, I am very appreciative you let me get a sneak peek. I look forward to reading the updates because, you know, I kind of dork out on this stuff. And I think all of your students are really lucky and everybody should buy a copy of this book. Oh, thanks, Shane. Delighted to hear you say that. And it means a lot coming, coming from you. You've been in this field now for a long time and it's an exciting field. There's a lot more going to happen. So I got to keep up to date with it. Fantastic. Well, thank you for being a guest on Explain to Shane. Thanks, Shane. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.